You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Tuesday, October 9th, 2012, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hey, how are my teammates tonight? Pretty good. Pretty good. What's up with you? What what team are we on? The, the, the fighting space dinosaurs. Yeah. Oh, that's of course. course, of course. Obviously. Hey, guess what today is? Uh, Saturday, so October thirteenth. Today is the anniversary of the miracle of the sun, which was an event in nineteen seventeen, when in which uh, tens of thousands of people claimed to have seen the Virgin Mary appearing in the sun. This is something we've talked about before. Uh, it's known as uh, the Lady of Fatima apparition. She supposedly appeared to three shepherd children who uh, and, and told them that she was going to reappear soon. And so they went and told everyone. And for some reason, tons of people believed them. And everybody went out and stared at the sun until they saw the Blessed Virgin Mary. So that was October 13th, 1917. On October 13th, 1930, the event was accepted as a miracle. And on October 13th, 1951, the papal legate, Cardinal Tedeschini, told a million people gathered at Fatima that on October 30th, 31st, November 1st, and November 8th, 1950, Pope Pius the XII also witnessed the miracle of the sun from the Vatican Gardens. The only miracle is that not everyone went blind by staring into the sun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, 10 minutes is a long time. Depends on how how carefully they stared, you know, how long they each stared. How cloudy it was. And I, and I bet you some people cheated, too, you know, as they realized, wow, this really, really hurts. You know, they kind of maybe averted their eyes momentarily. But to... Joe Nichols says, Evan, they probably weren't looking at the sun, but at a sun dog or a... Um... Uh, a mirage of the sun, a, a mock yeah, sun. Really? Well. So it wasn't really as bright as looking at the sun itself, just an atmospheric effect. Um, and of course, there, you know, there are as many different reports about what people saw as there are, were people there. Some people saw nothing. Some people did saw rainbow hues. Other people saw the quote unquote sun dancing around. So that's consistent with an optical illusion or an atmospheric effect. You know, it was a subjective experience by the viewer, not something objective that everybody was seeing with a reasonable similarity of accounts. So it's, you know, pretty clearly just that's what you get when you stare at something really bright in the sky for a long time. You're going to start seeing weird stuff. But there was some pretty serious mass delusion or hallucination. What would you call it, Steve? I don't know that that's the case. I mean, I don't know that you need to invoke a mass hallucination or mass delusion more than just some people saw some atmospheric effects or illusions. And there was a shared you know, belief people were there because they were looking for a miracle. They were there to see a miracle. They were there because they shared a faith and they saw something that, that they interpreted in in line with their faith. Yeah, Jay, don't forget, expectation and desire can have a huge effect on what you, on what you perceive. That's big, all you big, need. Big, big influence. Sure, definitely. I mean, I've I've read quite a bit about this situation. I mean, what happened there? And there were reports of people saying that everybody was like drenched from a downpour and then all their clothes dried and, you know, in a matter of seconds. And there's a lot of, a lot of statements being made about, about that. And I was just wondering, I mean, this didn't actually happen that long ago. It wasn't, there are people that are still alive that were there, right? 
Well, so it's getting close to 100 years, right? It's 95 years ago. So only only little kids would so, still yeah, be alive. No, probably not. Yeah. yeah actually, I, I've read about that. It was so long ago that there were people still alive. That's a sign of the age. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I mean, there was nothing miraculous. I think it's the accounts like that. Then you have rumor and, you know, urban legend kind of effects taking over where you get all the, you know, kinds of weird reports about what happened. I always like to think of this in terms like we have these modern episodes where we're, we're close enough to it where like you could actually look at newspaper reports of different accounts of what happened that day. You can investigate it in a way that you can't investigate, for example, miracles attributed to Jesus of Nazareth in the New Testament. But you could see how those kind of stories would develop surrounding, you know, some kind of, even just the claim that there's something miraculous happening. It just develops spontaneously. Just imagine how superstitious farmers living 2,000 years ago were. Yeah. Well, we do have something serious to go on to. The Nobel Prizes for 2012. Da, 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 da. <laughs> I thought we, we actually... talked about these last week, didn't we? That was the Nobel Prize. the Ig Nobel. We're only going to have a time to talk about two this week. The Nobel Prize in Physics and the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. We'll do the Chemistry Award next week. The Medicine one is interesting. You guys know who got this? No. Two guys whose research was separated by 44 years. I thought that was very interesting. That was so far apart. 1962, John Gurdon discovered that you can replace the nucleus of a frog embryo with the nucleus of a mature intestinal cell, and that new embryo could still develop into a normal tadpole. This was a stunning proof of concept, which showed that, contrary to common belief at the time, that even a fully mature and differentiated cell that had been dedicated to being just one type of cell, like an intestinal cell, still had the capability of undifferentiating or dedifferentiating back to an embryonic state and then turning into every kind of cell necessary to make a whole organism. It wasn't known if that would be possible or not. You know, it was possible that once a cell had matured to a certain point. It had forever gone down that path and not only deactivated genes, but permanently turned them off in some way, or just that the process wasn't reversible. But what what he showed, what Gurdon showed, is that the process was completely 100% reversible. Again, very stunning concept at the time. What made him think it was reversible? Is it, or did he did he not have that expectation when he was doing when he was? No, I think he suspected tests. that that was the case. I mean, that's why he did the experiment. But uh, and his uh, colleagues at the time were highly skeptical of the result. You know, they didn't believe it at that first until it was replicated. So it was, you know, just like science is supposed to work, a new, really radically new idea. They said, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. Let's, you know, before we take it seriously, let's make sure it's reproducible. It was, and then changed by our understanding of biology. 44 years later, and we actually talked about this news item in 2006, Shinya Yamanaka did a series of studies looking at the genetic mechanism of turning a mature cell into a a pluripotent stem cell. So he took cells from a a mouse, mature cells from a mouse, and by tweaking just four genes, was able to turn it into a pluripotent stem cell. Remember we talked about the fact that this was a total game changer in terms of the stem cell controversy? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You no no longer needed to harvest embryonic stem cells. You could just take skin cells or fibroblasts, turn them into into stem cells that could then be used to 
become any other kind of cell that you want. And it was far simpler than we had assumed. We thought, oh, it must have been a really complicated process, but it actually turned out to be fairly manageable. Uh, only a few genes were necessary in order to make that process happen. That created the potential for a couple of things. One, make stem cells without having to harvest them from either fetuses or embryos. And two, the ability to take a mature person, you know, someone who's 40s, 50s, 60s, you know, old, take a cell from them, turn it into a stem cell, and then, for example, grow body parts that are perfectly matched to them. You know, grow a heart, a lung, a liver, for example, or whatever. Total game changer in terms of stem cell potential. You know, we're still in that early stage of practical applications. So these two guys who, who share the Nobel Prize showed theoretically the potential of stem cells, but we still have, to, it's still a very difficult technology to implement. The next is the Nobel Prize in Physics. This was given to two researchers, Serge Haroche and David Wineland, for independently inventing and developing methods for measuring and manipulating individual particles while preserving their quantum mechanical nature. Mm. So we, we do talk a lot about quantum mechanics on this show, mainly because it's so widely misunderstood and misapplied. It's the, the favorite go-to fake explanation for anything paranormal. Just the so Deepak effect. Yeah, the, the Deepak. It just makes some hand-waving, oh, it's all quantum mechanics. Quantum, quantum. Yeah. One of the aspects of quantum mechanics is this notion of at the quantum level, our particles can be in the, in a state that is not fully determined, uh, either a superposition of states or just in a indetermined state. However, when you, when you make any attempt to look at or measure those states, by necessity, you're interacting with them in some way. And that interaction collapses the indeterminacy into more of a classical defined state. So you can't see the quantum weirdness when you try to look at yeah. it. It's decoherence. Yeah, decoherence, collapsing of the waveform, whatever, you hear different terminology for that. So that was a, a conundrum in that you can't, you could never experimentally verify the quantum weirdness because any, any time you try to look at it, it's not there. So, But what these two guys just realized is that you can look at it in subtle ways, maybe not full on in the face, but you can kind of look at it out of the corner of your eye you know, metaphorically, you could sort of interrogate these quantum systems in subtle ways without collapsing them or, or making the quantum weirdness go away. And interestingly, they, they did it in complementary ways, sort of coming at it from different angles. One of them looked at the quantum properties of light by interacting it with, with atoms and electrons. And the other looked at quantum properties of protons, neutrons, and electrons by interacting it with photons, with, with particles of light. So they kind of did it in opposite ways. But they achieved the same end, able to, to experimentally verify the, the, this quantum indeterminacy by this more, more gentle or subtle way of, of looking at these systems you know, without making the quantum effects go away entirely. So it did open up a, a completely new avenue of research in quantum mechanics. Do you really think, though, Steve, that there's something to this, I, I, when I turn it over in my head, I'm seeing the idea of superposition is that there really isn't a designated way to describe what position the, the quantum state is in, right? It's in all possible positions. Guys, it's also important to note that this isn't just some 
theoretical thing that, that physicists think is happening. I mean, they've actually done experiments where they could somehow show that it is in this super, you know, superposition. There, it is actually in multiple states at the same exact time. Well, Bob, let me now, I, let me play devil's advocate there for a minute, okay. because from, just from a theoretical point of view, a philosophical. How could you know that without interacting and collapsing the wave function? Hang on. From a okay. philosophical <laughs> point of view, all of science is just creating an explanatory model that makes predictions, and we don't ever know if we're describing the way the world actually is, or we're just coming up with a way that we can understand and think about right. the world in a way that makes predictions. The only thing we could really say about any kind of scientific theory is how, how well it makes predictions, not if it is the way nature really is. And I think that's true of all of our theories, but it, you know, it certainly applies to quantum mechanics to, to some degree. The question is to what degree? You know, we, we have a certain description of, of quantum behavior that predicts how quantum, you know, states are going to behave experimentally. And, and we make sense of that as best we can with our human brain. But we really have no way of knowing if it's describing how nature actually works or it's just the closest approximation or model of it that we can come up with. I, I, I do right. have this suspicion, this strong suspicion that our quantum mechanical theories are, are missing something significant. And while they may be good predictive models of what we're going to see experimentally, that we're, we're, just, we're missing some fundam something conceptually fundamental about the world at that level, how we, what's really going on. Maybe it's a limitation of the human brain. Maybe it's just, you know, we haven't had somebody, the right combination of genius and opportunity and knowledge for somebody to make that mental leap, you know, essentially the kind of leap that Einstein made with, with relativity. You know, we, we're just waiting for that person to come around, the opportunity to come around. To, to really take us to a much deeper level in our understanding. But that's kind know, of, it's, it's kind of an easy thing to say, you know, to, to predict, but it's, and maybe it's just purely my bias, my uncomfortableness with the whole notion of quantum mechanics that makes me feel that that's probably the case. It's funny you invoke Einstein, uh, cause he, he, I think he felt similar to how you feel and that he, yeah. he, he couldn't buy that, that quantum mechanics was fundamental and all the experiments and, and thinking since, you know, since then, since he died, since even, you know, since the 50s, 60s, and 70s, point to the fact that yet, that it, it is fundamental and any, and, and, and any theory that, um, can, tra that transcends it would still need to have, you know, would, wouldn't change really anything that we already know about, about, yeah. about, about quantum mechanics. And, and so I think I, I would I would disagree a, a little bit from what you're saying if you think that there is something you know much more fundamental uh, about it. Well, Bob, that, um, uh, but we're not disagreeing with each other necessarily because it could still be fundamental as a predictive model, but still there'd be something deeper in terms of trying to conceptualize what's really going on. It's like classical mechanics and relativity. You know, they they were missing something fundamental. But they, their predictive models are still perfectly good. And yeah, still, but there, there's still work, you know, in, in most situations. But they, but there was something they weren't really describing that. what was happening in the universe. Yeah, one theory. What is what was the term? Uh, subsumes or uh, yeah, sub, sub, uh, one, one one term. You know, one concept subsumes the other. But the thing is, though, the, the thinking with quantum mechanics is that that once that more fundamental fundamental foundation underneath quantum mechanics is found, then you would then you would be able to explain things. Like uh, entanglement, and also you'd be able to explain 
uh, things like like superposition and and the 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 inherent randomness of quantum mechanics because yeah. as we know quantum mechanics is fundamentally random. There is you said makes predictions. Yeah, we can make predictions, but we can only predict. Well, there's a ten percent chance of this and a thirty percent chance of that. That's as, right. that's the best we will probably ever get, and and that's what rankled Einstein so much is that this this inherent the spookiness and and this unpredictability. And I don't think we're gonna necessarily ever going to get around that, even if we do find some other some other theory that can encapsulate it, I don't think we're necessarily going to get around that. And if that's what your main concern about quantum mechanics is, my I, my suggestion is get used to it. Yeah, well, here's <laughs> here, here's my question. Uh, <laughs> Suck it up, in other words. I acknowledge all that. Here's my question, though, is let's say we do get to some deeper level of understanding of quantum mechanics. Is it going to be – is it going to make less sense or more sense at that point? Is it going to become <laughs> even more mysterious and quirky and mind-boggling or is the light going to go off and go, oh, now I, now it all makes sense. Now I get it. I don't know. I, you know, I, I suspect it will become even more weird. I think, I, think the, I think, yeah, I think the former and I think this is, this is one of the examples of the things like trying to teach a dog calculus. It's just you're never going to do it. I just think there's – We've reached a wall where we can, we'll never be able to wrap our ha- head around not only quantum mechanics, but anything, you know, more fundamental, I think, would just right. be forever beyond our grasp until, of course, we uh, uplift our brains and, uh, and, be, and then we could have that aha moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, what about t- turning a computer like Watson loose on the problem, you know? Well, yeah, I think an artificial intelligence would pro- will probably be the, the first conscious entity to perhaps understand that. We have to program into them a, a deep and abiding desire to explain their knowledge to us. Yeah, yeah. right. And That's to not kill us in the process. Right. <laughs> Please. All right, let's move on. Bob, you're going to tell us about how to find alien civilizations. Yeah, so Penn State astronomers have recently been given a grant for a two-year search for signals from extraterrestrials. That doesn't sound too unusual, but they're not looking for radio waves, though. They're looking for the telltale signals of a power source used by super-civilizations, namely Dyson spheres, used to capture all or much of a star's entire energy output. These are three Penn State astronomers. They're led by Jason Wright, and they're using grant money from the John Templeton Foundation's New Frontiers program, which is designed to answer fundamental questions about existence and, and the universe. And the scientists are using NASA's Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer, or WISE, satellite to look for the, these telltale infrared signatures uh, from Dyson Spheres. Now, but before we move on, I do want to mention that generally I'm not a big fan of the Templeton Foundation because they – Yes, you know, they, I agree. They support a lot of you know, muddling of science and spirituality and religion. Chopra-esque. Yeah. I mean, they're eh. by big questions, they're not talking about necessarily big scientific questions so much as big spiritual questions about what does it all mean. And they, right. They, and also they trying to a lot join, of nonsense. Yeah. Right, also frankly. trying to join uh, faith and science. Yeah. And which I, which I think is a mistake. And I absolutely agree, Steve. And I even hesitated mentioning them in my talk. No, no, it's good. That's how I feel. That's how I feel about them. It's good to know. Yeah. It's good to yeah. know that yeah. this is the only right. thing they funded that I think was worthwhile. Ap- and in, it's I, interesting I timing, too, because Templeton was set up as a response to the Nobel Prize as a way to uh, do the Nobel Prize for religion, basically. And it's always uh, hmm. the, uh, the one of the rules is that it it – the prize has to be greater than the Nobel Prize. One up. Yeah, one up. yeah. It's basically yeah. It's designed to one up the Nobel. Well, these objects, these Dyson spheres, were hypothesized by mathematician and physicist Freeman Dyson in 1960. Now, one common conception 
of, of these things uh, sees them as solid spheres of material surrounding a star at, say, planetary distances, like, say, 1 AU, 93 million miles, uh, which is the distance from the Earth to our sun. And their purpose is to absorb the entire energy output of the star for use by whoever, the civilization that the engineers that, that created it. And uh, this, this is, of course, engineering at a scale that we can't, can't even possibly imagine pulling off. What we're talking about here, though, is astronomical scale engineering or simply astro engineering, uh, which is engineering at a scale that is just, uh, just mind boggling. Um, now, Dyson's train of thought kind of went like this. He was thinking, all right, energy consumption of a technological race uh, can increase at, at, a, at, at a pace that would eventually the planet itself could no longer supply w what was needed. And it just look, just looking at our, just looking at our energy needs, uh, our energy needs have doubled in the past in the past thirty years. If you just extrapolate that, uh, then we then our needs will outstrip what the Earth can supply in just four centuries. And I think that that will uh, be even even a lot sooner than that. Um, so he believed that one of the only options available um, to these civilizations included harnessing the parents the parent star's energy. Now this is is of course a titanic amount of energy. Uh, the, the amount of energy that uh, intersects with the Earth from the sun alone is about 10,000 times the amount that, uh, that our industrialized nations currently ut utilize. So the idea of this solid shell of matter, though, of, of photovoltaics or whatever analog they have you know, in their civilization, though, it's not really tenable. Uh, it, it couldn't really be pulled off for multiple reasons, one of them being uh, uh, the fact that you can't really keep the shell stable in orbit, in its orbit around the sun. It, eventually, it would... It would destabilize and co and collide with the sun, and there's just lots of lots of problems with actually a solid shell around a star. But interestingly, though, there's enough matter in our solar system to construct something like that. So if we ever wanted to do it, it there is actually enough matter to do that, depending, of course, how how thin you make it. So so in reality, uh, though, civilizations would probably create something better described as a Dyson swarm, which is a huge discrete orbiting solar collectors that could be built incrementally over time and absorb, of course, less energy than a sphere, but there'd still be plenty of energy, even for beings like uh, the Organians, the Q, or even the mice that, that run the planet Earth. So if, uh, come on, give me a chuckle. <laughs> Jesus. We all, we all got nice. the reference. We don't need Earth, to. Star Trek. <laughs> Just fake it. Need to, fake to it, kids. Make it all right. Known. So if, it, so if Dyson is correct and a decent number of super advanced alien societies have created these Dyson swarms to power, you know, their, um, their iPhone 5 millions or whatever, their, their ultra high def yada flop universe simulations, then, mm -hmm. then they should be detectable by us and by, you know, by the infrared, the infrared heat that, that's emitted by this sphere or, or, or swarm. So, and I think this is a great idea because if we assume that these, if we assume that these incredibly advanced civilizations exist, then certain types of astroengineering that they would that they would do would, by their very nature, be detectable by us. And I think this is this is one great example. But where this idea falls down a bit, though, however, is the premise that the Dyson swarm creation is very likely. Uh, all, everything I read made it seem like at least Dyson believed that that this is almost an inevitable occurrence once you you know reach these this milestone where you need more energy than. Than, uh, than your local environment can provide. He kind of made it seem like, yeah, it's, it's almost inevitable. And I, I just don't, I don't share that high degree of confidence. I think there might be lots of different ways that these super high-tech societies can, can get their energy. And I tried to do some research on what some of these were. Uh, I came across a couple good ones. Um, perhaps they can capture the energy from gamma ray bursts. 
Uh, now I don't know wow. how much energy. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of energy from from gamma ray bursts out there, but I don't know um, how feasible that is to you know to power your society from them. But it's just a it's an idea. Yeah, and how um, do you another, predict when one's going to happen? All you really know, Jay, is the frequency. You know, so many bursts will occur in this area of space over this certain amount of time. Um, another option would be that they could feed stars into black holes and then live off the the energy that's emitted by the accretion disk that that's Harsh. swirling around the black holes. Or maybe these civilizations are just jacked into their own private universe that, uh, and they don't really need that much energy. Just, you know, just plug in the computer and, and, uh, and live your life in whatever universe you want to live in. And they, they just don't need that much energy. Uh, and then there's also this other idea is that what if the civilization doesn't want to be detected? They could possibly cloak the infrared emission from their Dyson sphere or swarm so that nobody else can find them. And this is actually, uh, feasible, uh, they could come up with some clever way to get rid of the waste heat that's generated by the swarm. That's possible. Yeah, I was thinking about that. Maybe wouldn't they be so super efficient that they would just u- be using that infrared part of the spectrum rather than having it be waste heat that we could detect? Yeah, I mean, but it's, yeah, but think about it though. They're getting so much, so much energy from their sun and they've got this very low energy, very hard to use waste heat. Um, they could just let that go and not even worry about it. I mean, why would you care about, you know, a, a quadrillionth of a percent of the energy that you're getting just because it's wasted away in heat? Oh, we got to capture that little bit too. You know, I don't, I think they could safely ignore it unless they're really dedicated to privacy and, and they don't want to be found. And there's ways to deal with that. One way would be to build a Dyson swarm that's a hundred times bigger than was necessary. If you build it, if you build one big enough, which would be huge, Say, uh, you know, about twice the distance of Pluto when it's at its farthest in its orbit around the sun. I mean, we're talking, I mean, can you imagine a, a swarm of, of, you know, of, uh, of photovoltaics twice the distance of Pluto? I mean, that's just mind boggling. Um, but the cool, the idea though is that if you have it that big, then the waste heat that would, that would emanate from the shell or whatever you're using would be so cool that you, it would be indistinguishable from the cosmic microwave background radiation. And then their existence would get lost in the noise of the universe, and they would be essentially undetectable. So that's just one way that it, they could feasibly deal with it. And and uh, I would think if, if civilizations are doing this, then I don't think they're going to care too much. But who who knows what they're thinking? <laughs> so, but you know, it doesn't matter to me though. I, I think this is a great idea, even though there are these little potential problems that that could crop up. In some ways, I think detecting a Dyson swarm is a lot cooler than a boring radio signal. Uh, it's just to me, it's just so much more awe-inspiring to imagine that we detected aliens, not because they were sitting in some super radio antenna, you know, pinging the universe with hellos, but because they had you know, the audacity and the skill and the, and the need to build something on the scale of the sun, which was, which is just, uh, just, just amazing to me, and I'd love to find evidence of that. Rebecca, Simon Singh might be in a little bit more trouble again. You know, he might uh, be facing another lawsuit. Tell us about that. Yeah, you know, that guy just cannot keep his trap shut. Yeah, what's Simon saying? <laughs> he likes pissing off other people. Yeah. Well, I, I should note that Simon started a really awesome thing that I don't think we've ever mentioned here before, but it's called the Nightingale uh, Trust, I believe, the Nightingale Trust. And uh, I think the idea is that that uh, being, if, if some of our listeners will recall, Simon Singh, um, criticized chiropractic and particularly the British Chiropractic Association a few years ago. They sued him for libel. Uh, Simon won and went on to, um, 
basically change the libel laws in the UK, help help other organizations get the libel laws changed. They're still in the midst of doing all that. But meanwhile, Simon has gone on to be a bit of a crusader for good science, fighting against pseudoscience. Well, the most recent, uh, recently, this, uh, a, a photo of a magazine has been making in its way around Twitter. The magazine's called What Doctors Don't Tell You. And it is probably exactly what you're thinking right now. Uh, if you're imagining that BS from Kevin Trudeau sort of stuff, um, that's what it is. So some of the articles that are on the cover, just listed on the cover, things like reverse bone loss for good, the secret your doctor doesn't know, cervical cancer alert, what every mother and daughter should know about the new jab, how I avoided a hysterectomy through diets, rock and roll dads, you can regain your hearing, uh, sunbathe your diabetes away, end your child's wheezing without drugs, asthma exclusive. So, as you can imagine, what's wrong with those statements? There's, yeah, there's, there's some disturbing <laughs> ideas lurking within there. Uh, the tried and true anti-vax stuff in in terms of the cervical cancer, um, the HPV. That, that's referring to the HPV HPV vaccine. Um, yeah, the idea of not giving your kids the drugs they may need for asthma. Uh, Avoiding a hysterectomy through diet, I find, yeah. I find particularly what? horrific. Uh, Simon Singh picked up on this and, and tweeted some less than flattering things. Uh, all, all true though, and, and in Simon's trademark style, which is actually being quite polite while he's tearing someone to shreds. Simon contacted Comag, the distributors of the magazine. And, oh, I should mention that the magazine appears in several um, chains in the UK, like uh, bookstores and pharmacies and grocery stores. So Simon contacted Comag and raised his concerns that this magazine was promoting pseudoscience that could actually be really harmful to the audience. The magazine responded um, basically by telling him to go screw. And the editor of the magazine has been all over uh, Twitter and Facebook talking all kinds of trash about Simon. And one of the things that she tweeted was that she, let me read this. Uh, first, she called Simon and Haley Stevens, uh, another skeptic in the UK. She called them bully boys who were trying to censor them. She writes, Simon Singh, who is leading the charge, was just told by a distributor essentially to shove off and reminded that tweeting untrue statements about us or them is, well, libel. Simon had also been told by the distributor that they were seeking legal advice. So with those things in mind, a lot of people were thinking, wow, these guys have not been paying attention to what happened with uh, British chiropractic and that they were going to move forward and actually sue Simon. Now the editor has sort of pulled back. She's deleted her the Facebook update in which she mentions libel, and she goes on to claim that she never mentioned libel. 
and further says that she has no plans to pursue legal action against Simon, but she's attempting to stop the quote-unquote bullies from censoring the magazine. So now uh, skeptics in the UK are doing a great job. They're uh, hammering away at the distributors and also talking to the um, the, the various places where the magazines are sold, attempting to get them pulled from the shelves because of how dangerous they are. As of right now, I don't think that the magazine has been pulled, but you can join the fight if you uh, go on Twitter, if you follow Simon Singh. I think he's just at, oh, I think it's at S-L Singh, S-I-N-G-H. Uh, Simon's been giving people good instruction on how they can best uh, focus their energies in terms of writing letters to certain people or signing a petition or, you know, whatever it may be. Simon will probably be your good, a good point person for that. That's pretty inspiring to think that he's putting himself in harm's way again. I mean, hopefully nothing bad will come out of this, but, you know, Simon is definitely not afraid to get himself in trouble. Oh, yeah, he's tireless. I think... Most people, most people would have folded when the British Chiropractic Association threatened a lawsuit. Most people would have folded when they actually sued. Most people would have folded a year into the lawsuit. And most people, after winning the lawsuit, would not, um, practically court another <laughs> court case. But Simon luckily isn't most people. He's awesome. How can you go after these people without courting those kind of libel threats you know that's kind of goes with the territory yeah i don't mean to say that he's doing anything wrong or that he's no, no, no. he's just know, do, over he's doing the his top job. yeah he's, he's job. simply he's simply pointing out like look this is bad science and it's harmful definitely i mean you know in my opinion this magazine is a complete rag exploiting alternative medicine propaganda nonsense it's exploiting people's worst fears, urban legends, you know, wishful thinking in order to peddle dangerous misinformation and promote quackery. There's no way to say that without courting libel. And, you know, then of course they're going to bristle at that. They're not going to take that sitting down. But it highlights the fact that, you know, we need to be free to be able to criticize abject nonsense as abject nonsense, especially if it's dangerous misinformation, uh, without being harassed by lawsuits, and that was the whole point of the libel reform in the UK, that you basically couldn't do your job in the UK or, you know, anywhere producing information that was even looked at in the UK with the existing libel laws. You know, the, the, the charlatans and the quacks and the, and the frauds and con artists could defend themselves by just, you know, launching harassing lawsuits at honest even academic whistleblowers, you know, people just trying to give information to the public about how dangerous certain nonsense was. So this is just another perfect example. And of course, we have to mention the Streisand effect of, of you know, threatening Simon Singh with libel. I mean, how, you're best basically begging to be publicly flogged and criticized on a hundred websites and podcasts and blogs. You know, weren't they also saying, Rebecca, that this is a freedom of speech issue? Yeah, you know, whenever something like this comes up, there are always cries of censorship. And so, yeah, that's that's her argument is that these are bullies that are trying to unfairly censor us. And it doesn't mean that freedom of speech has no limitations. It certainly does. If you are 
saying harmful things that are actively harmful that are going to get people killed but incite violence these things do not fall under freedom of speech and also freedom of speech doesn't force a bookstore to carry your magazine and think about the ridiculous irony of making a free speech issue when you're threatening to sue somebody into into silence you're right you're well, trying to chill public discourse with the threat of libel Another reason why I think that she won't actually move forward with any kind of lawsuit, because, I mean, she deleted her Facebook status that mentioned libel because she desperately does not want people to think that she is, in fact, the person who wants to censor others. Right, because then suddenly you're the bully when you right. start throwing that around. All right, well, we'll follow this story if it develops into anything. Evan, now turning to uh, American politics, you're going to tell us about a company using the recent presidential debate for propaganda purposes to promote its shoddy technology. That's right, Steve. And uh, so we're going to tread somewhere where we don't often tread on the SGU. We're going to step into politics in the U.S. presidential election. Last week, October 3rd, it was reported by the political website The Daily Caller that there was going to be lie detectors incorporated into the first presidential debate, which took <laughs> place later that same evening. And the headline from the article read as such, Obama and Romney to face real lie detector test during debate. So I, I was immediately struck by the phrase real lie detector test, right? Which to me could mean two different things. Um, they're acknowledging that there are lie detectors that are real and some that are not real, and they've deemed that this one that's going to be used to be the authentic one. Um, or maybe they're simply perpetuating the widely accepted myth that lie detectors of any kind are legitimate, and therefore the real is some emphasis on the seriousness of such a tool being used to help gauge the candidates. Ooh. Well, reading on, anyways, uh, from the article, a spokesman for the group Americans for Limited Government had told the Daily Caller that they contracted with a company to use uh, a new truth-detecting technology to determine whether either candidate would be lying during the course of the debate. And here's the quote from the president of that political organization. Here's what he said. He said, for the first time within a few hours of a, of a political debate, the American people will know if the candidates are telling the truth and better be able to judge what promises are real, which ones are nothing more than political pandering. Sounds good, right? Almost too good to be true. Yeah. So I, so I'm reading this and I said, okay. So they mentioned using a company and I wondered which one they decided to incorporate. And, you know, surely the candidates weren't going to be hooked up to these traditional polygraphs, right? No, the article goes on to report that it's using something, using a company called Voice Analysis Technology. And again, they promised results within three hours of the conclusion of the debate. So a quick search reveals that uh, the folks at VAT utilize a technology called, so this is the company, and they utilize a specific technology called Layered Voice Analysis. And I thought to myself, Layered Voice Analysis, wow, that sounds really familiar. Where have I heard that before? And then I suddenly remembered, yeah, EVP? I blogged about yeah. this. <laughs> I blogged about this last year. Yeah, a year ago. LVA relies on the measurement of brain activity traces using the voice as a medium. And according to the folks at the company uh, called Nemesisco, and they are the manufacturers Nemesisco? of Nemesisco? That seriously Nemesisco. sounds like a, like a villain, like a super villain's it front It sounded like a breakfast cereal to me at first. Yeah, but... 
The folks at Nemesisco claim that the traces can be expressed in terms of stress, excitement, deception, and varying emotional states. That's directly from their website. Uh, LVA has also been roundly criticized by scientists and skeptics as being effectively useless, much the same as has gone the way of the polygraph. And when properly tested, uh, these devices and the people behind these devices who actually have to control them and do the readings, uh, they perform at chance level, right. no better than chance. Um, one website called Neuroskeptic, I don't know if our listeners are familiar with the folks at Neuroskeptic or the writer of Neuroskeptic blog, he pointed out way back in 2009, here's his quote, Given such results and the absence of scientific support for the underlying principles, it is justified to view the use of these machines as charlatanry, and we argue that there are serious ethical and security reasons to demand that responsible authorities and institutions should not get involved in such practices. Wow. Yeah, it's just, it's just another polygraph. I did see one study that showed that it can be effective in essentially tricking uh, people who are being interrogated into thinking that it works because it's all sciency, and then they <laughs> they confess because they think that the the computer is going to be able to tell if they're lying or not. So, but that's true of polygraph too. It's a way of uh, it's a intimidation, invoking of intimidating a or tricking people into confessing because they think that the polygraph works, but that's not the same thing as it actually working, which. Which it doesn't. They also criticize the research that shows that it doesn't work, but they haven't been able to produce research themselves that shows that it does. Well, so for the debate, I mean, there were several actual lies said during the debate that were obvious and pointed out the next day. Do they show that they picked up on those lies? Well, they did. They published the results of the test. Well, actually, the website did. Remember, it's Americans for Limited Government. They were the ones who sponsored this effectively, and they put out a statement the next day about the results. Ready? The lie detector voice analysis tests of the presidential debate were found to be inconclusive by voice analysis technology. Wow. The technology can detect a deception if the person knows they are deceiving, but if they believe what they are saying is true, <laughs> even if it's not, it's not picked up. And we're engaging in further reviews of these reports. Are you kidding? I kid you not. <laughs> What so they said, so that statement basically says that neither of them knew they were lying. I think it says right, that their thing is it, completely useless. That's what it says. <laughs> That's what I got. Yeah. And yeah. kudos to them for not lying, I guess, because they could have, I feel like they could have easily been like, oh yeah, we caught this lie and this lie and this one. And then just like copy and pasted what all the blogs already wrote, you know? But I mean, kudos to them for, for admitting that they're useless, I guess. But I would think politics is the exact worst situation for this kind of technology because politicians might have a little bit of experience saying things that are not exactly true and coming off as sincere. I mean, right? Isn't this is sort of a self-selective process, a survival of the best liar, if you will? And you, now you're talking about a presidential debate. You're talking about maybe the, the two absolute best, best, best liars. Yeah, the, the pinnacle of you know the whole political process. The two best liars in the country at the time. <laughs> So I don't know, not maybe not a not a fair test, but again, I think right. that they just were using the exploiting the debate for headlines. How do we know the candidates are lying? Their, Their lips mouths are moving. Are moving. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. I want a quickie with Bob. Bob. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Rebecca. I promise you won't regret it. Hello, this is your quickie with Bob. Today I'm going to discuss quickly the historic Falcon 9 launch that occurred Sunday, October 7th. 
this is a historic flight because the initial test flights have been completed. They've all they're all done. Making this latest launch the first really, really official mission for a commercial spacecraft, which is really cool. Um, SpaceX is under a 1.6 billion dollar billion American dollar contract with NASA to fly 12 missions to the ISS, the International Space Station, through 2016. Now, if you watch the launch live, everything seemed fine or nominal, as they put it. But overnight, SpaceX released a statement about an engine anomaly. They said, and I quote. Approximately 1 minute and 19 seconds into last night's launch, the Falcon 9 rocket detected an anomaly on one first stage engine. Initial data suggests that one of the rocket's nine Merlin engines, engine 1, lost power suddenly and an engine shutdown command was issued. Now some have speculated that an explosion occurred and it sure seems that way if you look at the video. There's a flare up in the exhaust and you can see debris flying off of it. Now SpaceX claims that, that the debris were the panels that the shutdown command jettisoned. This is usually done to relieve pressure from the engine bay to safeguard the eight other engines. Um, even though this anomaly was unplanned and embarrassing and uh, a little bit scary, it, it was actually a cool demonstration of Falcon's engine out capability. Once the engine was shut down, the flight computer, I think its name is HAL, recalculated in real time a new trajectory for the rocket, uh, which is pretty awesome, and then it fired the remaining eight engines longer than they normally would have to compensate for uh, engine one, which was cut out of the loop. And because of this, there was no effect on, on Dragon, which is the capsule on top of the Falcon engines. And there was also no effect on the resupply mission to the ISS, which is really, really good. That's all I got. Thank you. This has been your Quickie with Bob. I hope it was good for you too. Okay. Hey, Bob. uh, hey, Bob. Sorry. I, yeah. I was taking a, I was taking a call just now. Um, go ahead. <laughs> well, Evan. It's time for Who's That Noisy? All right, let's play for you. For those of you that have forgotten last week's Who's That Noisy? Here we go. <laughs> Quiet. I'm telling you, that's the Faces War of the unstuck. Worlds noise right in there. That is so cool. You know that? It's it, that crickety sounding. Not There's peepers and there's crickety sounding noises in there. It's the crickety sounding noises. That's right out of the movie. These are all scientific terms. Did you know that surrounding our planet are rings of plasma? Oh, yeah. Part of the Earth's magnetosphere mm-hmm. that yeah. are pulsing with radio waves? No. Did you that's, know that so That's those, where the sound came from? Awesome. Those, those waves are not audible to the human ear alone but to radio antenna they pick them up nicely just like all radio waves exactly and not just any uh tool did this it was the electric and magnetic field instrument suite and integrated science also known as emphasis uh, which is aboard nasa's recently launched radiation belt storm probes and it has picked up those waves and well turned it into pleasant sounds for us that sound like, well, to Jay, War of the World sounds. And to other people, lots of different things. Because there were lots of different guesses as to what this was. Cool. Those first, cool, the cool the first noises definitely sounded like peepers, though. Yeah, yeah. peepers? Yeah, like, peepers. War, like the frogs. Chorus of birds chirping, perhaps, in the early morning. And the first person to guess correctly from our very own forums, Big Mike. B-I-G-M-I-K. Big are Mike. Peop- are people guessing on other forums? Well, no. Okay. But, <laughs> I'm just saying, in case people might think 
yeah. <laughs> there may be more than one forum. And that was Big Mike's second post. So, and here's what he said. He said, wow, this is the first time I've listened to a podcast so soon on after putting it on, and I knew the noisy, and I was mowing the lawn, which is my podcast time, and I started listening to it, I ran upstairs to post so fast that my wife thought I'd stuck my hands in the blades. <laughs> That's cool. That's devotion. So, Big Mike, you are this week's winner. Well done. Good job, Big Mike. Thanks, Big Mike. So, guess what? I got, uh, I have a fresh one this week. That's good. This is a good one. Steve? It's not, it's not a stale one? No. This one's for you, Steve. All right, Ev. We just give uh, a dose, a large dose, of green black walnut hull. And what does that do? That, that kills the stages, larval stages of the fasciolopsis parasite called the intestinal fluke. Good one, F. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one. Okay, there she is. So it's her. the woman you want us to identify, not the guy who spoke. Yeah, he, who cares that. about the guy? It's the woman who's uh, mouthing the claptrap at us. So give it your best guess, please. Info at theskepticsguide.org is our email. And sguforums.com is our forums. And I look forward to reading your guesses. Good luck, everyone. All right. Thanks, Evan. One email this week. This one comes from Tessa French from Sydney, Australia, one of our favorite cities in the world. And Tessa writes, I discovered your podcast a few months ago, and I am currently working through the back catalog, so I don't know if you've discussed this recently or not. Here's a link to a story about a neuroscientist who spent time in a coma and claims, in quotes, as far as I know, no one before me has ever traveled to this dimension while their cortex was completely shut down and while their body was under minute medical observation, as mine was for the full seven days of my coma. I am completely skeptical of his claims, but I am no scientist, so I wondered about Dr. Novella's opinion on what the brain might do if the cortex is shut down and how this could possibly be explained. I also just wanted to thank you all so much for the work that you do, yada yada. All right. Well, thank you, Tessa. Wait, for is that what she in. wrote? Yada yada. Yeah, she did. Yeah. Thank you. Yada, um, okay. Yada. I was just making sure you weren't being rude and like. <laughs> no, no. I yada, I yada, 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 yada her whole paragraph where she <laughs> thanks us, but you could read that right. in the show, in the show notes. Um, so th this was the most emailed story to us this week. The neurosurgeon who wrote an article for Newsweek promoted as proof of heaven. Proof, guys. Proof. Well, how? Well, this guy's what, subjective hallucinations. This is proof. the best proof since that little boy wrote that whole book on meeting Jesus in heaven. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, Steve, I guess what you're implying here is that his cerebral cortex was not shut down. No. So let's – his premise is massively flawed. He says that uh, – what happened to this guy? He's like, you know, it was a young, healthy neurosurgeon, not, not somebody extremely old, but he had – he got bacterial meningitis – Within hours of getting a headache, was in the hospital and slipping into a coma and eventually was in a deep coma. Cortex being shut down is a little, you know, hyperbole. But let's say he had cortical activity consistent with a really deep coma, but not brain death, right? Which is probably the case, meaning there was minimal electrical activity on EEG, certainly too little to generate any experiences or memory. Probably. Let's say we buy that. He didn't go into that state directly, meaning he didn't go from being awake to being in that state, and he certainly didn't go from that state to being awake. It's not like you just pop out of a coma. He must have passed through lighter, lighter stages of coma or stages of brain activity where his brain was recovering, it was functioning, but he still was hallucinating, dreaming, delirious, 
not awake or, or certainly not fully conscious, plenty of time to form lots of dreamlike experiences. And he would have absolutely no sense of time. People who come out of a coma have no sense of how long they were in a coma, when their memories formed, just none whatsoever. He has no way of knowing that the memories that he has of this dreamlike experience occurred while his brain had minimal cortical activity. It certainly could have happened while he was, he, he was in a stage where he would have been delirious, you know, but forming experiences and memories, but dreamlike hallucinations. Also, his description of the, of his experiences, get this. Tell me what you think about this. He, he recounts being in the sky on fluffy white and pink clouds with winged angelic creatures flying by. Seriously. Wow. This Seriously. is exactly He's like that super... little boy's <laughs> description of heaven. I mean, you know, really. His own beliefs over that, yeah. Shocking, shocking vision Shock. of, of, of heaven. Yeah, not culturally like embedded in his Christian belief at all. No, 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 not at all. Yeah, his pre-existing beliefs. So this is what happens when you, when you hallucinate. You you fill in the gaps with your own belief system and your you know, your own mythology. Uh, so not not surprising at all. And he marvels at how. Tell me if this experience sounds familiar to you. He was with another creature, a female, you know, beautiful, very. European light, you know, colored you know, female who communicated to him without speaking. So he just knew what she wanted to convey to him. Right. So the, the, the experience was, it sex? It was, was, it sex? was extremely vivid. And was he in Muslim heaven? He just, no, he wasn't in Muslim heaven. There was no 72 virgins, but, uh, right. So it's very dreamlike. Yeah, you know how in dreams, you, you just know <laughs> certain things for the absolute certainty in your dream. And and there it could be an absolutely a certain vividness to the dream, more real than real in certain ways because your reality testing apparatus is not fully engaged, etc. You know you're experiencing it with a subset of your cortex, not a fully functional cortex. It's an altered state by definition. Um, so it has all of the hallmarks of a dreamlike experience. What's shocking is that this guy's a neurosurgeon, yeah. and and now he's promoting this incredibly naive thing. Well, we have a quick interview coming up I want to leave time for, so let's go to that now. Joining us now is Rob Hutton, who is the head of the SGU Transcription Project. Rob, we thank you for all the hard work that you're doing, and you're here to tell us about the uh, your effort to transcribe all of the SGU and that you need help, not surprisingly. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's a pretty gargantuan effort. You guys have been pretty prolific over the years. Sorry about that. Yeah, right. <laughs> How inconsiderate. I try to try to make them stop, but they won't listen to me. So tell us about it. Well, uh, you know, I was got addicted to the SGU, as a lot of people seem to do. And uh, I was sort of wondering what I could do to help, you know, as it kind of changed the way that I'd thought about the world. So um, I wanted to, to give something back and... Being a systems administrator, you know, I work with computers every day. I just thought, you know, well, uh, some transcripts would be really good. So I decided to set up a, a wiki page, and it's kind of taken off, actually. So what's what's been happening? When you say taken off, what do you mean? Well, we've got 35 of the 377 SGU episodes done and 21 of the 5x5 episodes. And uh, we've had, a, you know, a couple of really dedicated uh, contributors. We've had Mike C. and uh, Kat Grafton, who have... I mean, Kat, 
Katz had her brother, who's a, an amazing artist, uh, doing all sorts of icons and, and things for the site. So it's really starting to look good and really starting to come together. Yeah, we're starting to get quite a few sort of search hits, and, and I think it's turning into something that could be quite useful. But uh, it'd be great if we could have more people sort of chipping in and making it a bigger resource. And are you able to do a transcript in less than a week? So, like, are you keeping up at this point? Uh, we were keeping up initially. I think we're sort of falling behind a little bit. So, you know, any, any help that we could have it would be great. What we're doing at the moment is, uh, as soon as an episode comes out, we, we put the skeleton of, of the episode on the site and we break it up into pieces. So we put timestamps in each piece and then we encourage people to just take one chunk and do one chunk. So Rob, what could what could someone listening to the show do to help? Well, there's a there's a lot of things. Um, just coming on the site and having a look at the 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 help text that we put together on how to do a transcription is a good start. Uh, it's quite easy. You just download a an audio player and and play back the the audio at a slower rate so that you can type it out at that speed. Um, oh, boy, and then yeah. you just then you just copy paste the uh, the text that you transcribe into the the wiki the wiki software. It's cool. quite easy to to do and learn. But even uh, something like proofreading, which, uh, you know, once somebody does a transcript, if you can proofread it, you can do that almost at full speed. doesn't take a lot of time. But, you know, each thing does need to be uh, proofread because it's you know, impossible to get it perfectly the first time. How do you make it so people don't do the same episode? When you're starting to transcribe something, there's a little template that you can copy-paste. It's just one word um, surrounded by squiggly brackets. And that just that puts a little marker into the page saying, I'm working on this section. Nobody else work on it. Oh, okay. Rob, uh, I need to ask, which voices are the, the hardest to distinguish? It's Evan and Rebecca, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I know we I sound so it. much alike. I know it. Uh, no, Jay and Bob are the hardest to tell apart. I've never actually personally had a problem telling, telling you guys apart, but a lot of people complain about Jay and Bob sounding the same. <laughs> Jay, that's <laughs> funny, isn't it? I do too. Yeah, it sure is, Bob, you putt. <laughs> <laughs> Try to transcribe that. Uh, <laughs> I like the idea, though, of of being able, to, you know, first off, turning the episodes into text is great because people could search for something if they heard something on the show or they don't remember what show it was on. Even accessibility as well. I mean, you know, there's a whole community of people out there that I'm sure are uh, hard of hearing or whatever, and that, that adds them in. Uh, but even, I mean, absolutely, being able to link to something that you heard on the SGU, um, to be able to send just that section to a, to a person that's particularly interested in that, I think, would be really powerful. Um, and even to, to back up arguments you've been having at the pub, you know. <laughs> well, this is definitely a wiki crowdsourcing kind of project, a bunch of people doing a little bit rather than a few people killing themselves over it. So. And I, don't, I like the way you break it up so you, people can come in and very easily contribute as little or as much as they want, and you know, the whole project will take shape from there. Yeah, Rob, say somebody wants to just do a science or fiction or whatever. Is that okay? Is it too small? No, that's that's great. You know, anything that they can do is 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 perfect and and really helps. We've even got some fun sections in there. Uh, we've got a section for people's favorite quotes from you guys from the Rogues. Oh, cool. Um, there's not a lot there yet, but I'm sure that a lot of people will have some uh, some doozies in there soon. Rob, uh, where should people go? What's the address, and and how would you like them to contact you, or what's the process? So if they just go to sgutranscripts.org. Um, the wiki's right there. They can uh, they can sign up. 
Unfortunately, we've made it uh, registration only at the moment because we've had a lot of uh, a lot of spam accounts being set up. But that just sends us an email and we we tick off the the account. Then once they've got their account, they can uh, they can contribute as much as they want. If there's any problems with that, they can contact us at info at sgutranscripts.org. And um, when people when people do the transcripts, do they do their names get added to a list of contributors? Yeah, um, the wiki software provides that all automatically, so you can you can even see um, who the top contributors are and so forth. There's a there's a list of that under special pages. Yeah, why don't we do it? Why don't we set up the the first goal, the first person to join the site to do five episodes on their own? That and you confirm it, Rob. We'll give them uh, their any T-shirt they want. All right. Any SGU T-shirt, I said. Any SGU yeah, T-shirt, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Should be qualified, yes. I want the T-shirt Brad Pitt was was wearing. Uh, um, yeah. yeah, do that. <laughs> said any. And then Rob, let us know when it happens, and then we'll set up another milestone. All right, well, Rob, thanks for all of your work. Just you know, shows took a little initiative and found a way to contribute to the overall skeptical uh, effort. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks to you guys for the podcast. It's been great. Thanks, Rob. <laughs> It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious, and I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Is everyone ready for this week? Yes. Okay. Here we go. Item number one. A newly published paper claims to have found the true solution to the Pioneer anomaly, the tiny excessive deceleration of the Pioneer probe, in the laws of physics. Item number two. Chemists have developed a pencil that can draw functional sensors on a piece of paper. Item number three. Researchers have developed a method of producing black silicon, which can be used to make semiconductor processors several thousand times faster than silicon-based processors. Evan, go first. The first one. So this is a newly published paper claiming to have found the true solution to the Pioneer anomaly. We talked about it at the time, and I thought at the time they there was a paper claiming to have found that solution. This had to be five years ago. If I recall, it was more of a theory rather than a conclusion. Chemists, the second one, chemists developing a pencil that can draw functional sensors on a piece of paper. For what purpose? I have to try to figure out what the purpose is for that. The last one, about a method of producing black silicon. I've never heard of that before. Let's go back to the first one, the Pioneer Anomaly. You know, that one's pretty straightforward. I mean, they either did or they didn't. I don't, I don't know what the twist would be on here, unless it's something similar to what we talked about before, in which they have found the true solution. Well, I guess I'll go with my instinct saying that the Pioneer Anomaly one, I don't know that they found the true solution, Steve. Another hypothesis has apparently maybe come along that's going to be worked over. Can't call it the true solution yet, so I'll say that one's the fiction. Okay. Jay? Okay, the first one about the Pioneer Anomaly. I see no reason why I should doubt that somebody published a paper claiming that they found the true solution or the real solution or an accurate solution of the Pioneer Anomaly. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna have that one on the list. Uh, the second one is about the one about the chemist developing a pencil that can draw the functional sensor on a piece of paper. I absolutely believe in this one. I mean, why not? Maybe you know whatever the material is, you know, they were able to um, to make it so you can, in essence, draw with a material that that can sustain electrical charge or whatever. I mean, absolutely. And the last one, researchers have developed a method for producing a black silicon. 
I'm going to pick that one as the fake. Any particular reason? Because I think the other two are, are true, and this one I just don't know. Oh, good reason, okay. Jay. <laughs> well done. All right. Rebecca. Okay, well, that didn't help because I was waffling between the Pioneer Anomaly and the Black Silicon. The pencil that can draw functional sensors, that makes sense to me. I, As I have previously stated many times on the show, I have no idea how carbon nanotubes work, but I believe that they could do that, that they are conductive, and that carbon is what we normally put in mechanical pencils, and I bet you could put carbon nanotubes in pencils. Why not? Evan has a good point. I feel like we already talked about the Pioneer Anomaly and how that was all solved. So, I don't know, maybe this new paper is saying that that solution was wrong, and now there's another new solution, but... I mean, regardless, that one's really suspicious for that reason. And black silicon, I have no idea. What's black silicon? I don't know. Exactly. That's um, why I, th- I picked that's that what one. I <laughs> so, and developing a method of producing it, this magical material I've never heard of, um, is not the same as actually developing it. So this could be one of those many things where we're like, oh, it's five, five years away. I, okay. I'm going to say that that one's... I'm gonna say this is silicon is science. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Evan. I'm gonna say that the Pioneer Anomaly one is fiction. Thanks, Rebecca. No problem. All and right. Bob. Yeah, I read weeks ago that they came up with an idea to explain the anomaly. But since Steve only takes recent stuff, I have to assume that that's not what you're talking about here. Uh, the the idea with that theory was that the way the way heat dissipates away from the from the pioneer probe affected the uh, the you know, the movement of the of the probe itself, which uh, which could probably explain some of it. I suspect if that's true, it's probably just a, a minor a minor change, and they they found some other some other way to explain it uh, in the laws of physics, as it says right here. So so that'd be great. I, I'm kind of surprised that they were they'd be able to find some some loophole in the laws of physics that would explain it. I don't know how they could have missed it because they really vetted the hell out of this for for so many years. Uh, but that could do it. Some subtle aspect of physics that, that could explain it. I'm not sure what it would be. But yeah, I mean, I could see that. I mean, that'd be great to finally have a solution to that. I hope it, I hope it's true. For functional sensors on a piece of paper. Yeah, I mean, I could see this. Rebecca hit on the carbon nanotubes. I mean, yeah, you could somehow make that into the pencil lead and I assume they would kind of self-organize to a certain extent in order to make structures that uh, would act as functional sensors. I'm not sure what the power source would be, though. Uh, or perhaps they'd just uh, react to certain s- uh, signals or chemicals to have an, a sensor effect without having any real battery or anything like that. I guess that's possible. It'd be really pretty cool to do that. Black silicon, I've never heard of that. I'm not sure what it could be except perhaps some new way to dope silicon to make it a super semiconductor, but the several thousand times faster has kind of got me. That just seems orders of magnitude faster than, than silicon processors. That's, that's huge, and I unfortunately will have to resort to the idea that, shit, I would have heard of that if that was the case. It's hard for me to miss that stuff for long, unless it just came out <laughs> just before the show. Even if it came out a half hour ago, I still might have seen it. Uh, that one's got me a bit. That, 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 I hope that's true. 
several thousand times faster would be fantastic. But it's just a little bit too much. I think maybe you should have done a hundred times faster, Steve, instead of several thousand. So I'm going to say that one's fiction. Okay. So you all agree that chemists have developed a pencil that can draw functional centers on a piece of paper is science. You all think that one's true, and that one is science. Science. Hooray. Yeah. I read one. <laughs> you read that one? Yeah, ob- one I, obviously, Steve. Yeah, I don't know yeah. shit about carbon nanotubes. Yeah, she threw out carbon nanotubes. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you think I pulled that out my ass? No, you were, yeah, you were totally on the nose with that one. So yeah, it's a, yeah. you uh, d- replaced the lead of a mechanical pencil with compressed carbon powder carbon nanotubes so that when you, you, know, you draw with the pencil, you're leaving a trail of these carbon nanotubes. Uh, and you can you know, draw essentially a sensor or like a circuit onto a piece of paper. In one part of the article about it, it says you could draw it on any piece of, any paper surface, any piece of paper. But then in another part of the article, they say that they drew it on a paper that was embedded with gold as a conductor. <laughs> so it's a little bit different than <laughs> any piece paper. of paper. You need gold paper to do that. Yeah, yeah right? Well, okay. Everybody's That's got what gold I'm paper. Come Imprinted on. with small electrodes okay. made of gold. But here, the, the uh, carbon nanotubes, Rebecca, in this application serve as a resistor, not a conductor. Oh, right. Yeah, so See, I told you I didn't yeah. know. I don't know what uh, about. <laughs> at least according to this uh, description. And Evan, the purpose of this is t- the sensors are to detect gases. Gases. Yes, gases. Now, this particular sensor is uh, that they that they designed can detect ammonia gas, which is an industrial hazard. So that would be very useful if you could cheaply produce. Lots of ammonia gas sensors. But they say that the same concept could be used to detect lots of different kinds of harmful gases. So we'll see if it develops into an actual useful technology. But they, it was an interesting idea. Some simple pen, pencil. Could spread carbon nanotubes around. But I guess it's not that different than using like inkjet printers to print circuits or whatever. So the whole notion of printing electronics is, is already out there. Okay, let's go on to number one. A newly published paper claims to have found the true solution to the Pioneer anomaly, the tiny excessive deceleration of the Pioneer probe in the laws of physics. Evan and Rebecca, you think this one is the fiction. Jay and Bob think this one is science. And this one is science. We, we have talked about the Pioneer anomaly previously and the fact that it... It was an anomaly. I it was an anomaly. No, yeah. we did talk about the fact that there was a solution to the an- anomaly. The anomaly is that we're, we're very, very precisely tracking the path of the Pioneer probe as it's leaving the solar system, and it's slowing down because of the gravitational effect of of the sun, but it's slowing down a little bit more than it should. And so astronomers are looking for every possible reason to explain this small extra deceleration Explanations fall into two basic categories, that there is something physically happening to the probe that we need to detect, or that there is some misunderstanding in the laws of physics that are meaning our calculations are wrong. The explanation that we talked about not too long ago on the show was that they discovered a little bit of extra heat radiating from the probe, and that there's a little asymmetry in the radiation of the heat from the probe, and that that would that heat would actually act as a little thruster that would slow down the probe this tiny little amount. What I what I don't remember from our previous discussion is that this effect would only explain 15 to 20 percent of the observed acceleration yeah. of the anomaly. It doesn't explain the whole thing. 80 to 85 percent of it is still unexplained. Well, now physicist Sergei 
Kopikin, Kopikin, probably Kopikin, professor of physics and astronomy at MU's College of Arts and Science, said that his study explains the other 80 to 85 percent. He thinks that you can explain the deceleration with, did you read the article, Bob? Yes, I did. Okay, with the expansion of the universe, which has a differential effect on the movement of photons that make up light and radio waves. And therefore, if you account for the expansion of the universe's effect on the photons that we're using in order to detect the um, speed of this Pioneer probe, that explains the anomaly. He says that uh, physicists often forget about this effect because it, it's not present in everything that we observe or measure. If we're looking at you know, the, the Earth or the moon around the Earth or these kind of things, this effect is not apparent. But it, it's a very tiny effect, but it is apparent when you're using this technique to detect the, the speed of the pioneer. And so, again, laws of physics explain the pioneer anomaly, at least that, that remaining 85% chunk of it. What did you think of this article, Bob, when you read it? Did you buy it? Well, yeah. I mean, I trust this guy. I mean, he's a, he knows a lot more about this stuff than me. I was surprised. That's for sure. First off, I remember reading about the uh, the, the heat dissipation causing the deceleration, Yeah. Like, uh, like I said. And I thought, okay. And my take was that that resolves the entire issue. And yeah, that's what mention, I thought, They too. didn't mention the 20%. So I was kind of shocked that, oh, by the way, the heat thing is only 20, 15 to 20%. And here's the 80 to 80, 85%. I was like, oh, okay. And I was like, well, how, that's cool. And if it's true, that's fantastic. Uh, but how, you know, I don't know. How did you miss it? I mean, yeah, it's not obvious, but man, when you spend years and years and years looking at a problem, I would think they would have covered this angle. I mean, was there some sort of, uh, minimal redshift in the photons that, that they're looking at? I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it was cool. I hope, and I hope it's right. All right. Well, all of this means. That researchers have developed a method of producing black silicon, which can be used to make semiconductor processors several thousand times faster than silicon-based processors, is the fiction. Not entirely fiction, however. Ah! Researchers <laughs> have... Small I'll take that. ...have worked with something called black silicon. What researchers are looking at is use, the use of black silicon in solar cells, not as semiconductors. Um, and yeah, you know, I had to give it, Bob, you know, come on, several, I had to give it enough of a, of a, a few orders of magnitude to make it clearly, you know, clearly wrong. But anyway. What? Are uh, you saying that we should have gotten that based on that alone? No, no, it has yeah, to be like, yeah, it has to be yes, plausible, exactly but extreme enough that you can have a reason to justify thinking that it's fiction. I, I just thought it was uh, a little too extreme. So Bob, do you know how to make black silicon? Well, I said dope it with something that would make it darker. Um, that's that's the only thing I can think of to make it black besides spray painting it. Yeah, that's right. So you used a femtosecond laser pulse under sulfur containing atmosphere. So the the laser pulses incorporate sulfur into the silicon, yeah. and that turns it black. Cool. Uh, yeah. The it has an interesting property. The black silicon not it's not a super fast computer chip, but it does absorb in the infrared spectrum, Ooh. and therefore, if you incorporate it into a solar cell, traditional silicon-based solar cells do not absorb sunlight in the infrared spectrum, so they're missing that piece of, of the spectrum That's great. to generate electricity, so you can make solar cells more efficient. They, uh, you know, according to the article that I was reading about this, uh, this research, the, the researchers say that the standard silicon-based solar cells are 17% efficient. 
I always see different numbers and don't know. I know they're all over the board. It's like yeah, so I don't know how to what to compare that to. But at least internally, you know, using that as the metric. So they said standard silicon is seventy percent efficient. Seventeen. Seventeen percent. This would make it one more percent. This would get you to eighteen percent. Oh, geez, that's all. Woohoo! So you know. But yeah, you, know, you think about all these different methods we read about with solar cells. You have this, and you, you know you get a percent here, a percent there, and you could make it a little bit cheaper here, more durable there. You know, you get these incremental advances. And yeah, and we I think the solar cells are getting better. Hopefully, we'll get into the twenty to thirty to forty percent efficiency range with solar cells we can mass produce, or as you know, or paint onto cars or houses or whatever. Then. Then we're yeah. talking. Not there yet, but this is a no. One, but we're not that far away, the... Steve. We're not no, that I far agree. away, you know. And uh, it's, especially with gas prices the way they are, I think people are going to be even more seriously looking at this stuff. As, as serious as they are now, you know, when gas starts getting over five and over six dollars in some places. In football, we call that backing into winning, backing into the the postseason. When huh. you, you get into the postseason, not because you won, but because some other team lost. So solar solar energy being cost effective because gas prices are going up is backing into cost effectiveness for solar energy. We'd like to see it actually make technological advances and get there on its own. Right. But it is. It's making incremental advances. It, it, it's yeah. it's getting there slowly. And again, it's not going to be cost effective for everywhere all at once. You know, it probably already is cost effective if you live in Arizona, you know, or someplace like that, northeast of the United States. Maybe not so not much. Not so much. Yeah. I say but, we um, cut out the middleman and just start building a Dyson swarm. Yeah, well, I was yeah. going to say, yeah, Dyson <laughs> swarm is the way to go. Come on, let's harness the power of the sun. All right. Well, Jay, you're going to finish finish us up with a quote? I have a quote sent in by a listener named Ashley Pratt. This is a quote by Nikola Tesla. Does anybody know who Nikola Tesla is? No, never heard yeah, of the guy. He invented uh, the nickel. The lead singer for the band Tesla. <laughs> See that? He developed that car that's on a. I think he's the lead car. singer for Nickelback. He was a Serbian-American inventor, an electrical engineer, a mechanical engineer, a physicist, and a futurist. And he also invented alternating current. Oh, that Tesla. Uh, right. He said or wrote, The scientific man does not aim at an immediate result. He does not expect that his advanced ideas will be readily taken up. His work is like that of a planter for the future. His duty is to lay the foundation for those who are to come and point the way. He lives and labors and hopes. Okay. What would you say? You nicked your testicles? <laughs> Steve, I want to get in one more plug for the Paranormal Road Trip. ParanormalRoadTrip.org. Me, Richard Wiseman, John Ronson on the road. We're going to be stopping in. Cleveland on October 20th, Columbus the 21st, Cincinnati the 22nd, Louisville, Kentucky the 23rd, and then we're going to be at SciCon the 25th, and we'll see all of you guys there. And if you are going to be at SciCon, you have to sign up for the SGU dinner on Saturday night. It's going to be a lot of fun. You'll get to spend a lot of time with all of the rogues. And after the SGU dinner on Saturday night, we're going to do a private recording of the SGU, and you can join us. You can buy your tickets on skepticalrobot.com. And thanks for joining me this week, everyone. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. 
For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. You can also check out our other podcasts, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. For questions, suggestions and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes, Zoom or your portal of choice.